You're listening to the Yeshiva of Newark at IDT Podcast. I'm your host and curator, Rabbi Avram Kivilevich, and I hope you enjoy this episode. You're blowing the dust off the old books. You're trying to find an ancient treasure. Yes, the antiquarian who has smicha has arrived. But first, you've heard me on this platform touting NRS, a great company whose many dedicated employees I get to see in action. NRS Pay has recently launched its new cost-cutting program called Cash Discount. The way it works is any vendor using NRS Pay Cash Discount has their sale register tabulating automatically a dual pricing, which offers customers a choice of a cash payment, which could result in an up to 4% discount over swiping their card. If your business meets the $18,000 a month threshold, there's absolutely no monthly fee to incur. NRS Pay Cash Discount makes it less expensive to accept credit cards, so you'll save money while helping your customers save at the same time. NRS is offering a time-limited deal right now on this state-of-the-art system. You'll get a free card reader with zero hidden fees, no long-term contract, and no early termination fee, which means you can switch your processing plan without penalty. NRS Pay is a proud part of the IDT Corporation that I've been associated with for over 10 years and has integrity built into its corporate DNA. I know its founder, its officers, and salespeople, and they truly stand by their product and will help you with live stateside-based customer service on any issue or question. Check nrspay.com for more information or call 833-289-2767. And now... The Antiquarian. Clear the dust away. The Antiquarian has smicha. It's the eighth day of Tevis, and Yitzchak Kolokowski and I are talking about the significance of this day. And it's really an antiquarian feast. In the book known as Megillus Tainas Basro, let me give a little background here. One of the first books that was ever written for dissemination that was not the Torah scrolls, that was not part of Nevi'im and Ksuvim, was Megillus Tainus. Megillus Tainus was a list, sort of like a calendar of days in during the period of the second base on Mikdosh that one would not fast. In other words, it was a Megillah, meaning a, a scroll that people had, and they knew what are days that they weren't supposed to fast and what days they weren't supposed to conduct eulogies. And in that list, there were a number of days that were considered holidays based on national victories. Many of them were connected to the period that we just exited out of Hanukkah. And around that time, throughout that period, there was various battles, wars, and issues with the next enemy after the Yavonim, after the Hellenists, was the Tzedukim. So there's a lot of holidays that are considered significant. Those are called Megillus Tainus. Then there is a Brysa of Megillus Tainus. Not just the list, but the description of how, why each day is important. For example, why Hanukkah is important. That, of course, is what's found in the Gemara and Shabbos and the Chafal of Amebez, a word-for-word description from what we call the Brysa of Megillus Tainus. Then there is a nisbach, sort of an appendix to that, which some can see as sort of a separate book altogether, and it's actually called the Megillah with the list of days you're supposed to fast. And that is called, by scholars, Megillus Tainus Basro, or MTB. Now, in Megillus Tainus Basro, there are a number of days that should be fasting, which actually contradict the days in Megillus Tainus when you shouldn't be fasting. And there, therefore, there have been scholars that have been summarized by the, the beautiful article by Rav Schneer Lyman, you can find in the JQR, in the Jewish Quarterly Review, where he indicates that you know, there's some that doubt whether there's any provenance. But it's interesting that the great halachists all quote these days when it comes to the days of fasting. Most preeminent, of course, is the Bahag, who quotes from this Megillus Tainus a number of days during the year that people should fast, and people did fast. And included in that list is three in a row, at least in most editions, that have the 8th, the ninth, and the 10th of Tavis. And of course, the 10th of Tavis of Yitzchak uh, we're going to be talking about soon enough. Of course, it's pretty well known what the 10th of Tavis is, the, the day that the 
first real major siege of Yerushalayim occurred that actually threatened them to the point that it was going to lead to the destruction, which it did three years later. That is the 10th of Tavis. Uh, there might be more to the 10th of Tavis than that, as we, we, as we were discussing. But the 8th is mentioned there as the day that Nichtava Hatayra Yilvanis or Nitargama Hatayra Yilvanis. Three days, the Choshech came down. Now, I should just mention in an article that I found today, written by Levi Chariton in the Torah journal Tfunot, he mentions the research of scholars before him that there are other dates, even in a, the standard classic work of the Archas Chaim, it's mentioned that this event occurred, the Torah being translated into Greek, occurred on the first day, of Tavis, and again with the three-day darkness that ensued. I'm sure it took more than a day to, to translate it. Yes, so I guess it that did, might it, mean it, the day it, it was it, finished. It took Ravaria Kaplan, I think, I know, three, four months. Yeah, well, he was a, an incredible person, and I think God sort of knew the batteries were on the low, and therefore maybe on high, and therefore he was able to do such incredible things in, the, in his short life, things that most people could never even dream of doing. And of course, there's also manuscripts Arya Kaplan left. There's books that he wrote for the Wiser Press, books in, in Kabbalah and Biurim on the Sefer Habohir and other things that are just amazing. But Arya Kaplan, I think, might be a, an antiquarian show for another time. There is a book called the Sefer HaTodir, written by Moshe Bar Yukotil of Rome, that says that this occurred on the 5th of Tavis. And of course, there is actual manuscripts of this Megillus Tainus Basra that it might have happened on the 7th. There is a payut from the Yarchem de Rebbe Pinchas uh, that I'm not that familiar with. But according to that, it, it's basically a beautiful payut that describes, this is of course a very ancient payut that describes how each month has a holiday. And each holiday, of course, is connected to these stones on the breastplate of the Kohen Kodal, the Avnei Achoshen. And it also has the negative things of that month. And when it comes to Tavis, it says it's the 18th day that the negative of the Torah translated into Greek. It's clearly connected to Tavis, Yitzchak. But what the accepted idea is that it was on the eighth day. And there is a, a Mesechta Seifrim that says that this was such a difficult day. It was like the day that when that Targum was finished, it was like the day that the Ego itself was produced. And I think the Mesech the Sofram says because it just was not able to be translated, that it wasn't able to be translated properly. And so we are left with an interesting statement because those of our listeners that are familiar with the Gemara in Megillah that speaks about the miracle of what occurred, right? The Gemara Megillah knows about this this event. It talks about how Talmi had gathered these 70 Zikanim and put them in separate rooms. And he told them, you must translate the Torah for me. They didn't know what to do, but they all went into the rooms. And the Gemara Megillah indicates that a miracle occurred. Every single one of them, who of course was Translating, of course, translation, you would expect there should be differences between each person, but what occurred instead was exactly the same from all 70. And there were 18 differences which the Gemara and Megillah expounds on, or Abraisa in the Mesechtas Megillah expounds on. Most prominent one, of course, is the very first words of the Torah, Bereshus Barulakim, sounds like Bereshus is a separate God, and Bereshus created Elohim. And, of course, this was changed to Elohim Bora Bereshus, God created in the beginning. So these 18 differences were significant. Some of them are a little bit amusing. But what's strange, Yitzchok, is, is that the Gemara Megillah doesn't indicate that it's a, it was a terrible day. The Gemara Megillah looks at it as something positive, as a, as a day that, yes, there was a threat, but not a day necessarily to fast. And here we have these later sources. Well, the Shleishis Mechoshech is not mentioned there in... Right, not mentioned in the Gemara Megillah. So we have in the Mesechtas Tainas Basra and Mesechtas Seifram, both really written in the Gaonic period or early Gaonic period, perhaps in the period of the Rabban and Savroi, very early, but still it seems there seems to have been a shift from the time the Gemara was written to a couple hundred years later where the statements are quite negative about this event, that the fact that the Torah 
was translated. And there is, of course, the uh, hagiographic, I'm not sure exactly how we'd refer to it, it's called the Igeris Aristeus, that is a um, a work that was preserved, I think, in Greek, and then it was translated in Latin, which has a whole story of how this thing happened, a much greater elaboration of the events that occurred. The Igeris Aristeus was translated into Hebrew by the great Italian historiographer Bazzari de Vendumim, who, who appended it to his incredible work, the Morinayim, and that is how it became, once again, well-known. The request was that they should all be the same. So being they all should be the same is an indication that they, they didn't want any chidushim. They didn't want, they wanted just a translation. Okay. As opposed to, I remember seeing this from um, Rabbi Charles Kahana. He, he wrote a translation of the Chumash called the Tori Yashara. And I remember seeing that in the library, in, in, in the English library at Orsameh, Yushalayim, reading the Hakdama that he wrote. And he asked the, he asked the question, which I'm sure is not his Kiddush, I'm sure others have asked, but why why we mourn, why we probavelis over the, the, the Septuagint, and why... Right, Septuagint, again, is the, is the Greek of 70, Septuagint meaning 70, the yeah, writers. 70. Yeah. And then, and then, as opposed to he, he compared it and contrasted it to the Targum Unclus, to the Aramaic translation that we find that to we, be that we elevate to the point that we say it comes venerated. from Sinai. Yeah, and it, and it's something that that's that's venerated and 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 is used liturgically still to, in the Yemenite communities. They still use it liturgically, and it was classically used liturgically. So, what's the difference between these two? And what uh, Rabbi Charles Kahana... Can I throw in a question? Yeah. I, don't know if, I don't know if Kahana's answer will answer this. You know, I say Kahana because, you, as you mentioned to me before, he is actually the father of the the famous or infamous uh, Rabbi Meir Kahana. There's a question, of course, that the Riyaris Vash, Rabbi Anas asks, which is, the Torah in the beginning of Sefer Dvarim talks about Be'er HaTayra that the Torah was supposed to be translated into 70 languages. And that one of the most important things that the Klal Yisrael did as they went into Eretz Yisrael was the Seifram who wrote on these stones the translation of the Torah. And there were translations there made, maybe in the lifetime of Shrebeno in those last days of his life. And it seemed to have been something very important, according to Chazal, the way they explained those psukim. That makes the question even stronger. You're right. It, ma- it makes it even a bigger question. Right. It seems like we do want the Torah translated. We do want the Torah to be spread to the whole world. The Torah was not intended only to be for a small parochial ethnic group. The Torah was intended for the whole world. I was listening to a talk from a friend of mine. He said, you know, the Muslims often say that, you know, the Torah was only for the Yahud, for the Jews but that the Quran is for the whole world. And then this friend of mine said, no, the Torah is for the whole world. And the Erev Rav, even though they're often presented negatively, they're part of the Kal Yisrael. I remember, I think Rabbi Victor Miller, said that the conversion of the Erev Rav was the biggest Kiddush Hashem in history, that so many millions of people joined the Kal Yisrael and, and were Makabal the Torah, even though they were not perfect. But um, we're getting way okay, off. Okay, but yes, topic. yes. Anyway, I didn't, I, I didn't want to stop your train of thought, but I just wanted to strengthen the question of Rav Kahana, which of course is against Rabbi Yenis and Ibishes, which is what's called it, the Veltskasha. Is what's so bad about it, right? So, so what does he say the, the, as an the answer? Is that is that the the Targum Unclus is not a literal translation? It's and neither was his translation, but it's rather a synthesis of the Tarshavik Sav and Tarshavalpeh. The Torah of is like the Neshama, and the Torah of Ksav is the Guf. So when, when the Choshech came from the Targum Shivim, it's not because the Torah was translated, but that only Torah of Ksav was translated. And that's why Badav Ptolemy wanted to sequester all of the, he didn't want a synod of all of these Chachamim to come together and produce something. He wanted each individual to give him the exact same thing at threat of death because he specifically wanted only the Torah Shabbat and not the Torah Shabbat but then also you could add to that is that at that point then the Chumash just became another book on the shelf and wasn't in the elevated Let me tell status. you what you just said to the words of the Chsam Sofer which I'm showing you on the screen now. Chsam Sofer says that when the Torah is written in its original language 
which is the language that God spoke to Moshe Rabbeinu, then of course, there are so many myriad possible interpretations that you are able to say, and you're not wrong. And you can say pshat, and you can say drash, you can say remish, you can say sod, or you can say many possibilities in pshat. Therefore, the Bnei Yisrael are going to, as he says, they're going to be Yishmu Ladivri Chacham and Mopirushim Vichidosam. They're going to have just an exciting time every single time they learn the Psukim of the Torah because they're going to realize the various possibilities. But once you translate into a language, you need to choose one of those. In other words, when it's in its original form, then it's cryptic, perhaps, but also able incredibly to be so many things every time you look at it or in a different vein or in every year or every time you, you interact. But if you're going to translate, then it's got to be exact. It's got to be a certain kavana, and it becomes pshat shel mikro. Why? Because he says the languages outside of Lashon HaKodesh, they don't have this multi-aspect. They don't have this aspect that it could be many, many things at once. And therefore, you can't possibly do it. Once that happens, even the Bnei Yisrael are into pshat, the pshat shal mikro. In other words, once the Greek interpretation shows one angle and that becomes the pshat pshat, it reverberates back even among the Jews in Eretz Yisrael. And he says that's why you have the beginning of Apikorsis at this point. People don't want to listen to Chazal anymore because what they want, he says, is to have just a simple meaning. One of my Rebbeim, he quoted, but he quoted in English, although he, he's, he's the, an expert in the French language and many other languages, a polyglot, he said that there's a French saying that a translator is a traitor probably sounds better in French. You can't really capture anything in translation fully. And, and that, not only that, but the language changes over time. You know, we, we look at the different translations of the Tanakh from Lashon HaKodesh to all the different languages, and then the languages change over time. And so you look at, you know, words that King James used that meant what it meant at that time. And again, King James was a group that came together wasn't right. it was the greatest scholars of their time and they 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 really argued about it and there's a beautiful article in the atlantic about 35 years ago that uh, i would ask our listeners to try to dig up that really puts it on the table exactly how these bible translations work the amazing scholarship that went into every single one uh, how each one relied on the one before. Uh, I just want to share with you something that Kitrin writes, and I think this is uh, very much relevant to something you were talking about earlier. The Septuagint, the original one, the one that Chazal talked about, became something different once it morphed into various Greek translations to what's known as the Septuagint today. And we know there's thousands of differences between the Tanakh that we have in the Tanakh of Septuagin, uh, the great, great guy in Rav Chaim Heller, in one of his books, he actually wrote a chart of all the differences between the Septuagint and origin and, and some of the various other differences. So basically what happened is Chazal knew that these differences would get greater and greater. And he says once that happens, they knew that it would become, in many people's eyes, more significant and more authoritative. And I'll just read you in, in Hebrew what he writes here. He says, The Bible critics especially are very happy with it. And they say the reason is, is because that is the real Nusach HaTorah, that it's known as the Septuagint. That's the real Nusach HaTorah. The Mesorah was actually done afterwards and therefore, it really should not be given historical weight. And their proof to it, Yitzchak, and this is what we were talking about, what their proof was, was the fact that the Septuagint is extant. They have versions of it that are wrapped in papyrus that they have dated of being over 1,700 years old. Whereas the oldest Xaviyah they found up until the Dead Sea Scrolls, which we'll talk about in a second, was only, up until that point, was only it was less than 1,000 years so that was what they used. And of course, this is why what you mentioned to me earlier today, the findings of the Dead Sea Scrolls, which showed that 60% of the Qumran texts aligned with not the Septuagint, but actually with the Mesorah and the Megillus and the Tefillin that were found there. One of the, you know, the arguments that I guess is still somewhat current 
I think you said you saw a video that a Christian priest once again was using, despite the evidence from the Dead Sea Scrolls. We know, by the way, that the reason why the Christians are so darned excited about the Dead Sea Scrolls, even now, although it was found in Eretz Yisrael and it should be completely under the control, those dig and manuscripts should be completely under control of the of the biblical scholars from Eretz Yisrael, there are Christians who are working on it and are part of this team because to them it was the indicator, you know, in their antiquarian way to find the proof of Jesus's, the historicity of Jesus. And that's what the Dead Sea Scrolls supposedly proved. I don't think they proved it at all. It did show that there was a, a Qumran sect and that they seemed to have the type of behaviors that one could say align somewhat with Jesus's disciples, but there's no well, mention. Not, not really. If anything, you, could, you find things in the in the Dead Sea Scrolls that also support, I know uh, there's, it's a machloikas between two of my own rabbeim, you know, like one of my rabbeim, Rabbi Siegel, he, he insists that the the people in Qumran, the, the scenes were not, did not accept Torah Shabbat but then Rabbi Bart Sadok says, no, they did accept Torah Shabbat just they rejected the city life, and they wanted to be separate from, from the corruption of Yushalayim, and they were, and they were extremists in other ways, but they, but the way that they write, there's one of the scrolls that talks about in Yonim of Tumat and Tahara, and it, it echoes very much the style that that Chazal used, and that was kind Again, of again. So it is the, very, you know, puzzling that Christians today should still utter this type of argument that the Septuagint. Well, I, 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 I was, this has been on my mind because I'm not going to mention any names, but I think people might be aware was on some radio shows and things that that there was a, a case of a, a Gerd Sedek that I was metapa with. I brought him to Besdin. I was Besar Kedushin's Hasana. And uh, he was very frum for about five years. And he, lighter, he is for Darbin, Gavorn, and Gonson. And he went back to a, a very strange religious cult that he was involved with briefly uh, in between learning Yiddishkeit for a number of years. And then he was rejected so much he wound up there. And then he, and he tells us that he rejected that. He was totally sincere at the time when he was Megayer. And then he was learning a lot, davening very stark, and he, he finished Shas and he finished Zorakodesh and and then he decided after finishing Shas, some kind of a crazy Yitzhahara came to him to go back to the other ways. And one of the things that told a friend of ours that the reason why was because this idea that the Septuagint is actually older, more original or more authentic than what we have in the Masoretic text, it's just so ridiculous. It's hard to believe that anyone could believe that, particularly again, like we said, after the time of the Dead Sea Scrolls. So there are a few places where it sides with that. And again, the answer to that could be like Rabbi Siegel says, they were, they're not people who are macabre, so they, they're not of interest for historical reasons, but not really for religious reasons, the, the uh, Dead Sea Scrolls. But nonetheless, the historical reasons, like you said, are tremendous because it puts back a Hebrew scripture thousand years earlier and, and before any other manuscripts we know of. You know, you know I think this phenomena of, of very intelligent people and people we even admire for so many reasons, adopting hashkafos or ideas that seem to be illogical and seem to be completely, as we say, upgefricht, completely dismissed by the facts. I think, of course, this is what both of us are seeing in terms of attitudes towards what's happening in Eretz Yisrael, in terms of the significance of the claim of the B'nai Yisrael, of Eretz Yisrael on this country, the significance of the justification of the war. Again, you you find people that, that are intelligent and that you admire. You admire their writing, you admire what they're about, mouthing ideas that are that, that seem to be so illogical. And, I, and again, I think you see from here that there is, you know, even, even the, the best minds choose based on what, is necessary for them to choose for other reasons, not just on intellectual ones. A lot, a lot of these things. I think uh, Alderich Musser comes from from more of a gaiva because I, I remember a story. There was a, a reform Jewish scholar. I think his name was Benjamin Alexander. It was actually Fulton Sheen, who later became a bishop, and he was a young priest. He was sent to try to debate with this professor Alexander 
about some crazy outlandish theological claims that he made that gained popularity and admiration of heads of state and kings and queens. They gave him various awards. And when Sheen confronted Alexander about this, and Sheen said, you know, maybe we could study together some older texts and compare, you know, and see where you made your mistake. And then Alexander said, if I'm just reading the old books, I'm never going to be famous. But here I made up something that's so crazy that that'll make me famous. Shades of L. Ron Hubbard. Yeah. Oh. In, the, in the end, Sheen was a lot more a lot more famous than than Alexander, though. Let me just add to us here a, 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 a Medrash Tanhuma, where it's, it's interesting uh, that Moshe Rabbeinu, sort of according to the Medrash, wanted to have more in Ksav. He wanted to have that the Torah Shabbat that you were talking about should be written. I guess, again, Moshe Rabbeinu felt it would you know, that he was the king of Tereshah Bixab, and of course the king of Tereshah Balpeh, he says, why can't it be Bixab? Why can't we have a written document? And the Medrash gives an incredible answer, which again might reflect on why this is considered a fast day, and a day that we should sort of mourn. It says, And of course, that means the original miraculous one turns into the Septuagint that we know, Behem Omrim Anu Yisrael, Vad Achshav HaMaznayim Muyan. In other words, they are, they're the ones, the Christians, in other words, saying, this is our Torah, we're the ones that have the right thing. So God says, Atem Omrim Sha'atem Bonai, according to the Medrash, you think you're my children? <laughs> the only people I recognize as my children, again, this fits in with what Kahana was saying, the ones that know the mystery, the one that knows the secrets, the things that are not so clear, the things that are, that sound opaque and are difficult, and you have to use the keys of Tereshul Papet to understand. That's the Mishnah that's given Alpeh. And therefore, he says, Moshe Rabbeinu, I, that's why the Torah says, tarasi, you want all this to be written down? What will happen now is that they are going to control it. And therefore, we we are so blessed that we have the Torah Shabalpeh, which, as you said, Unkulis is Maramistu, or Unkulis can be understood in light of the Torah Shabalpeh. And again, I just want to mention, by the way, what Rabbi Anderson Ivashit's answers in his uh, Yoris Dvash to his question, to the question about earlier. He says, in the time of Moshe Rabbeinu, the translations were perfect. In other words, because they they had a Havana Amitis. He seems to assume, Rabbi Anderson does, the multiplicity of Pshatim, although it becomes part of Torah, is the type of thing that God sort of gives us a good check for. In other words, the opposite of the Chassam Sofer. Some Sofer says that this multiplicity and the multiple aspects of Torah is really what the Torah is meant to be for every generation. Rabbi Yenison says actually the opposite. He says, even though it's true, God recognizes that we're doing our best and but at the time of Moshe Rabbeinu, they knew what was Klor, the Havana, and therefore those translations that were done were done by the experts and were definitely 100% correct. Interesting how the various Rabbanim of generations, the Midrashim themselves, seem to have sort of a, a, a nuanced view of, of translations. Let's talk about the most famous translation before the, the English translations that we know about. You mentioned Kahanas and, of course, uh, the translations here in the 20th and 21st centuries, and, of course, is the 18th century translation of the Torah, known as the Bayer, written by Moshe Mendelssohn. Now, Mendelssohn had a team who helping him in terms of the actual interpretations that were on the page. And I have a, a copy of the Bayer. I have the second edition. I don't have the first. I have the Zollenbach edition, and I also have from 1840, which was the Vilna edition of the Bayer. And as much as people consider it, um, you know, an Apikaris type of book, and Shalom to have it, Rivki Vager had it in his house as well. A uh, very famous story of the Chassam Sefer and Rivki Vager. So the Bayer, written, basically worked on by Mendelssohn. It's an interesting thing, Yitzchak. Uh, Mendelssohn, of course, was was well known as a critic a philosopher. He won first prize in the German contests for original philosophical tracts. I think he was picked over Kant, picked over Immanuel Kant. And he, he was very, very famous. Gottold Ephraim Lessing, of course, um, extolled him in the play Nathan the Wise. Mendelssohn was a, a breakthrough uh, personality 
he represented for so many people something that belied the canard that Jews are uncivilized, that Jews cannot be in high culture, that Jews cannot be trusted. He was universally loved. Rabbi Yenison Ivish, as I just mentioned before, even gave him a ksav haskoma, which is very close to a smicha. He gave him sort of like a ksav, which we have a copy of that, and it was printed in Kerem Chemed, a haskola journal of the early 19th century that they discovered. In his private writings, he talks about how he has to stop writing now because it's uh, Shabbos is coming. I don't know if he davened in a minion or wore a yarmulke all the time. I, I remember hearing a story that he, he was traveling somewhere and it was, was almost Shkia. And he had so he had to stop to Davin Mincha and then they said, What what difference does it make? He said he said in his whole life he never never uh, missed Mincha, you know, before Shkia. And it's clear from his letters that he was you know, again, he didn't go to Shul necessarily every week. Neither do I and neither do you. But the point though is is that why he was moved to his to his translation, as Alexander Altman points out in his magnificent biography of Mendelssohn, is because he was suffering from terrible migraines and headaches, which might have been indicative of a brain tumor because he died uh, relatively young and he was not able to concentrate on his the philosophical tracts that he was writing. So he his brain was still working. He says, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to work on a translation, which he felt had less intellectual rigor that was needed for that than what he was working on in terms of classical philosophy that had been his bread and butter up until that. The truth is, is that his idea was, he saw, he looked around, and he saw that there was a already a lack of interest. There were tefillas that were going on in shoals when, when he did show up, that the congregants didn't seem to understand what the Torah was about. So his idea was, and those of you that have a, uh, a Mendelssohn Bayer can see, was to write the Torah over where we have sort of unculus on the side, he had the Targum Ashkenazi the, in Hebrew letters, German words in Hebrew letters. And this was in a way to make what he felt sort of like Yiddish, like the uh, Beis Yehuda Chumash or the Tzenarena, that would make the Torah understandable to the masses. That was what he felt he was doing. He felt it was a positive thing. He appended to it. It's interesting because in, in high school, you know, history class, they taught us the opposite. They told us that Mendelssohn's purpose in translating the Torah to German was to teach Yidin who already knew Chumash to teach them German as opposed to Rav Hirsch who, who was teaching the German Yidin Chumash because they didn't know Chumash anymore. But they, what we were taught, and, and again, maybe it was wrong, but it was that at that time, most even they knew Chumash, but they didn't. They didn't know German. I, I I know one of my. I think you're correct that there was an element of that as well to bring out some who were not aware of the German language and to help them. I think that was part of it. But I think there was an element that was already uh, disenfranchised. Most of the time, you're right. From the Frum historians, you're going to hear how Mendelssohn lit the fire of Haskola and was the father of all the terrible things that occurred. My good friend Avi Shafrin wrote an article in the Jewish Observer uh, in the 80s mentioning you know, Mendelssohn's religiosity and talking about the mistakes Mendelssohn might have made. The very next issue, the Jewish Observer had to issue an apology for writing an article that somehow gave Mendelssohn any sort of uh, distinctive props at all. Uh, the Novominska Rebbe decided himself that he was going to, uh, despite his respect he had for Avi Shafrin, he was going to slap it down. So I, I think there has been for years a demonizing of Mendelssohn, uh, especially as, you know, People know, of course, about his grandson, of course, the amazing, amazing composer Felix Mendelssohn, who was Gishmatzach. They know about his daughter, Henrietta Hertz, who was also had a salon where, where you know, men and women uh, frolicked around and were involved in all sorts of prostomysum. And basically, you know, we have, two, after two generations, uh, we have Mendelssohn's children all basically living as Christians. Mendelssohn himself, though, stood very firm uh, when Lavater the priest demanded that now that Jews have been given equal rights, that Judaism should basically dissolve and that Judaism should now join Christianity. Mendelssohn wrote his defense of Judaism called Yerushalayim, Jerusalem, which is, you know, a, a defense of why Jews must still keep the Torah. It, it's not necessarily our Ruach. It's nothing like Hirsch at all. But Mendelssohn saw himself as a staunch defender of the faith, 
and he didn't see himself as dissipating it. I should also tell you that Mendelssohn's Hakdama to the Chumash, which I think is sometimes called Orwa Nesiva, the Bayer was called Nesiva Sasholom. Nesiva Sholom, isn't that interesting? You know, the Spitz Chassidish say for today was what Mendelssohn referred to as his, as his beer, Nesiva Sholom. So he has an introduction to the whole Torah called Orwin Sivosi, which is an incredible introduction about how the different Mahalchim and Pshat, Rem is Drush and Soid. And also he wrote, even before, like sort of as he was working on the Bayer, he wrote a beautiful Hebrew commentary on Kehelas with an introduction, which is appended to the Bayer on Chumash. I'm not going to say that he was an Achroin as a Paisik. In fact, Rav Yaakov Emden was very upset in Denmark, there was uh, a call to to have Halonus mace him. As you know, there was a, a case where someone who had gone into uh, anaphylactic shock and appeared like they were dead. And then, you know, it turned out that uh, the person had actually been buried alive. Or So they came up with a, uh, a gazette or a gazette that you had to wait three three days for every person who had died. You know, remember they in the morgues, they would put bells on their toes. I'm sure you're familiar with that. It's right. like in case they would somehow become unparalyzed so people would hear it. And when Rabbi Yaakov Emden was, was turned to by the, by the Jews in, in Denmark, uh, he said, look, it's definitely, uh, we're being over and over of Halonus Mason. We should definitely have an intercessor who will come and uh, defend our right to do things according to our religion based on the mitzvah of, of Lysol and Nivlos to bury as quick as possible. But I'm going to ask Mendelssohn to get involved because he knows how to deal. He knows the language and he's very respected. So Mendelssohn decided to roll up his sleeves and do the sugi himself. And he actually was machria the other way. <laughs> and which, which Mendelssohn and Rabbi then then engaged in a sort of a machlekes. You know, Mendelssohn said, if it's true that it's pikuach nefesh, then, then even it's halonus mesim should be nitcha, machmas the possibility pikuach nefesh. So, you know, just a little bit of an aside here about Mendelssohn and his bayer, but it was, yes, it was condemned, uh, at the time. There were many Rabbanim, even though Esedric Yeager had it, there were many Rabbanim who felt that this was a step in the wrong direction. And this ultimately, even Mendelssohn's Bayer, uh, the translation was one thing. The interpretation, other than the first Parsha, Parsha Liberations was done by Mendelssohn himself, after it was done by the, the great scholar, Shlema Dubna, who ended up printing his own, Yitzchok, he did his own translation of the Chumash again, based on his interpretation. By the way, Rabbi Yakutsi uh, Mecklenburg, the Xavik Kabbalah, when he printed his first Chomish, it was also printed with a German translation based on his Bayer. And Mendelssohn himself used for his commentary on Sefer Vayikra, it is one of the most prized commentaries that was written by Rav Tovli Herz Wiesel, or called Wesley, that very much deals with the Rishonim and the Teres Kehanim. Really, the king of, of scholarship, Rav David Svi Hoffman, uh, makes continuous use of Wiesel's Parish B'mikra. And of course, Wiesel would never have gotten the job. He was just a Malamed had Mendelssohn not chosen him. Uh, to do this work. I think, you know, it's unfair that they blame Mendelssohn for so much of the damage. I think the bigger damage really came from the Tat Shat. That's really where where the Sabbath You're talking here about the Shabbatzvinikos who... Yeah, uh, yeah. yeah. And, then, and then subsequently the Frankists. Right, and of course they were ready to uh, to use any means to get to their secret ends, including, of course, acting in the most irreligious ways possible. I think what we see here, Yitzchak, is that when translations occur, there's a mixed reception. The translation of the Torah, again, we talk about, of course, the, the Christian translations. You mentioned that the JPS translation of the Torah was not yet there when, when Kahana wrote Torah Yashara. Well, no, well, actually, there was originally the 1917, which was more the the style of, of King James or the Revised Standard Version. And then uh, when Kahana made the Torah Yashara, was just when JPS came out with their second version, uh, I believe it was 1962, and then he made the Torah in 1963, and then JPS made another translation in the 80s, and now recently they came out with a, a more a liberal, gender-neutral translation that avoids calling God he, things like that, that's come out more recently and has, has you know, drawn a lot of ire from uh, those of more traditionalists, which I, I share that ire and, and not, not only that but i looked at it and it's not a 
not a very good translation either. The fact of the matter is I, I personally liked the 1917 version, but the interesting thing was that when Rob Hertz uh, from England made his Chumash, he originally actually published it with with the Revised Standard Version, which was before they got permission to use the JPS version, and then once they got permission to print it with the JPS, that became the standard for uh, really all, all not only the Hertz Chumash, but all the Sancino books of the Bible used the 1917 version, even when it was subsequently revised with a little bit more Frumer version with the through the Judaica Press, when, and they somewhat merged Judaica Press and Sancino. There was the Judaica Press Tanakh, and then there was which probably one of the better ones with with all with the whole Rashi translated and a lot of with the Mikras Gadolus everything on the page and other things there with uh, with the Haskama from Ramesha, and then they came out. Uh, there was somewhat of a a merger between Judaica Press and Sancino that the second edition of the Sancino books of the Bible were done more frumer. You know, took out all the 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 Goyesha references that were in the earlier versions of the the rest of the books, as except for the Sincino Chumish, which is, you know, using the same, again, the same translation, but because they felt that Rap Hertz already did his version that was so eclectic, but still nonetheless frum and, and with strong orthodox apologetics, then, you know, when Rap Cohen came out with his, his was much more accordant to really only quoting, I think mostly Rishonim only, or some of the major Achronim and the Mikvit Gedolos, and that was that was right, his right, approach. Right, right. And you're right. When I was growing up in Shul, those were the two Chumashim that our our Shul had. It was either the Hertz Chumash or you're right, the the Cohen Chumash. And I remember some of the, uh, the college kids reviling me, you know, with stuff that was in the Hertz Chumash because they knew that I was very from boy and you know they asked me well look what it says over here and it talks here about evolution and other things like that which of course i didn't have much of an answer for at that time well he wasn't he wasn't a very liberal about evolution he was he was more middle of the road but but particularly what right but, but, even, admired, but to even find a place where evolution can somehow be aligned yeah, what with, I, with, what with, I with the torah though, was his apologetics against the documentary hypothesis of higher biblical criticism showing how empty it was, and he and he brought very strong proofs, you know, against that, and that was, I think, if you're already in the Bible critics camp, and this is why what David C. Hoffman did was so incredible, you already sort of have to admit that what we're talking about is the documents that were sort of stitched together from different periods. It's almost like Lahavdu Yisrael and Hamas, you know, for Hoffman to write, you know, his parish on Vayikra and on Devarim. And, you know, going into, you know, what all the Bible critics were saying and disproving them in his book against Wellhausen and still remain the great Paisic Mamad Ahoyal is really, really incredible. It shows his brilliance and his elegant writing. I think it was more necessary at the time because in the English-speaking world as well, why Rep Hertz needed to do that was because it was so... Their so arguments, their arguments were being heard. I mean, when I look at it, you just look at the Chumash that we have and the way it is, and I think this is, the, to me, the greatest apologetic argument to the cosmos and the originality of, of Tarmi Sinai, is that, very simply, we see all the Chaseris and Yaseris and the Kriyang Siv, things that do not follow standard grammar in, in Dikduk and Lashon HaKodesh, that are all throughout the Chumash, and how that changes you know, the later books of Tanakh in, in certain ways as well, though, but nonetheless, if there was a redactor, as the Bible critics claim, he didn't do a very good job editing. <laughs> editing, you know, it has to be Minashamayim and it has to be something much deeper. Because if it was an editor, he sure did a lousy job contradicting yeah. Perak yeah. Aleph to Perak Bays of Voracious, yes. Not only that, but just the spelling and the, and the, and the grammar and everything else. I just want to end today with, on Friday, we'll be having a very rushed Arab Shabbos. And of course, this is going to drop next week, but will have read in the morning the slicha from uh, Rabbi Yosef Ibn Avyosar, also known as uh, Ben Shatnash, who was uh, in uh, Muslim Spain in the 11th century and was known as one of the great, great Paitonim and also a Paisic. And he had a Bezdin that they actually don Dinin Efoshos. Incredible person, Rabbi Yosef Ibn Avyosar. So he is the author of the Payet, Eskara Matzok, I just want to mention, you know, that much is made out of his piet. Eskar Mitzok Asher Kara'ani. I'm going to remember this 
the straits that uh, attached itself to me, in other words, the whole Jewish people, there are four things occurred. Of course, there's a lot of different aslos, but four is, is crucial here. There's four things that occurred that sort of got me down. Gideani, it sort of cracked me in half. Dikaani, it depressed me. Heniani, it moved me. Hichani, pained me. Those four things. Adata, Hilani, the Pesach and Eov. Up until now, I, I don't know if I can take it. And now you have the next one, which again, you have Aleph, Bey's Gimel. Here's Dalid. Diachani, and of course, that is the term, the Hebrew term for extinguishing. I was extinguished, like a light that was extinguished on the eighth day, smolis vi yemonis. I was extinguished on the eighth to left and right. Halo shloshi yomim nikbati bitanis. There were three days that have been established as a fast. Umelech yovon anasani lichtov dos yivonis. Valgabi, and on my back, harshu harshim, the plowers. They plowed my back. It's like they like they were using me, push me into something I didn't want to do. So here we have a description of Dichani, which is again being extinguished, which again is a remise to the light being expunged. It's almost as if like the reason for the three fasts are almost all contained in and what occurred. Uh, even though this happened after the actions of Asarabatevis. Rav Sadia also is credited as a python as well. And you can find in his Siddur, which is also found in the B'nai Roma, the Roman uh, Moxer on Asarabatevis, they say his piet. And I'll read you some of it. It's called Oz Ba'ozvi Mikrados. It's when I left the religion from the Torah. Me'eso es. I didn't really work on concentrating and really think enough about the learning. So God was disgusted by me. And therefore, you know, I turned away from Torah. God brought Soros on me. Basically, what Rosadia ends up saying is what happened in Bayes Rishon and Shani, it seems, to Isi Achare Gilulim, the Tavnis, there's Tess. Yehirim Oziriku Bichonis. We were attacked. It's not like by doing Avodazora things got better. My spirit was in a way almost extinguished. So once again, you have Sadia really confirming that this is, comes on the heels, Yitzchak, of, 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 I guess, a lack of learning, a lack of, you know, it wasn't necessarily because of that that occurred. The way Sadia seems to see it is that the Bnei Yisrael was sort of asking for it. It, it sort of was, was happening already. It's almost like what was the chicken and what was the egg? We had already, in a way, sort of abdicated our role the way it should have been. And that's why, again, we have uh, the Torah being translated to Yavonis, despite you know the beauty of, of the Greek language, the fact that so many Jews were proficient at. Okay, so even though they might have been well-meaning in coming there, what they ended up doing was providing that community with an excuse and a, and a way, <laughs> a nesiva not l'shalom, but a nesiva for... Is pointless. You you sort of got to commend what they were able to do. They they stood their ground. They they were definitely distinct in a way, but they got a lot of things wrong. Yeah, I think, as, as we both agreed, I I don't know how much, I you know how much Hebrew like Philo Philo. I don't think he knew any Didio or Philo Philo Alexandria. You know his works are are magnificently uh, written and they're so interesting as he sort of redoes the life of Moshe Rabbeinu and the Avos with Midrashim that we aren't aware of. But his his interpretation of various mitzvahs seems to not align with what we know. Not only that, but just, just it seems to bear out an ignorance. Right, when he tries to explain why the names, one of the things Philo does is describe why each person, why Noah has the name Noah. He doesn't seem to understand true Lashon HaKodesh. So, we have to be wary, again, of, of translations. And I think that's, uh, you know, let's put it out there. There's so many people who 
feel, despite the incredible advantages of what Art Scroll has made for so many people to enter into the learning of Gemara, uh, there are many people who feel that it has become much more than just an aid. It's become a replacement. And there's so many kids out there who they can't move without an art scroll. They, they feel helpless. Although you might say the Talmud needed uh, help to the point that these successful translations, Yitzchak, sometimes become like the Frankenstein monster and sometimes, or, <laughs> or, the, or a golem out of control. And it ends up changing things way beyond what the translators ever meant. And it actually could become a replacement, really, of authenticity. So, so I'll say one thing to, in conclusion related to that, though, was that you know, today was the art site of the Ishbitzer, the Meishelach, and his son, the Beis Yaakov, has a, a beautiful idea that basically, you know, it's, it's not quite what, you know, uh, Lahavdil, some of the other religions talk about progressive revelation, but so called so the idea of Das Torah, it's not that we're trying to uncover what was intended, that what Hashem said 3,000 years ago, and we're trying to uncover is that when we follow our Messorah and we follow our Chacham and we follow our Gedol Israel, we follow the Tzadikim, that this is what Hashem is telling us today. And so it really doesn't matter when it was brought up this question. I, I was talking to another subject with this gear. I said, you know, how crazy the idea is that, that the Septuagint could be earlier. And he said, well, it's, let's say it's not crazy because, you know, the, the Masoretic text, as we have it now, you know, was only, you know, written down later. And we know, you know, what it was, even though we do believe, of course, it was a Masorah of why the name Masoretic comes from. But nonetheless, the self called Sophie said it shouldn't matter if we're Eden, it, it doesn't matter what we read, what, what we, sh- we should be, you know, totally connected to, to our Messorah and to Yiddishkeit, and, and nothing should be able to shake us away from that. And so, while we, I think we have authenticated the authenticity, of course, of the Chumash. not that we needed it. I think, unlike, unlike our previous programs, I, I think we sort of disauthenticated the, the yeah. Targum Shiv of today. I think that's what, yeah. we, what we could say. We didn't need it. We're solid in our Yiddishkeit no matter what. And well, it was, but it was definitely interesting to um, examine the yeah. statements and to think about, not to get caught up with the, you know, the allure of things easy. Yeah, bro, to recognize, you know, we could, we could all fall, and so we have to daven Tashem that we should continue to fall in the right way. Yes, amen. Be well, everybody. We have definitely disauthenticated the Septuagint. Watch out for that dust on the way out. We'll catch you next time. Be well. Thank you so much for listening to this episode. I hope you liked what you heard. If you did, please take a moment to share this or any of the many episodes available on our platform with friends in order to help grow our community. Until next time, Shalom. Shalom.